kind of know where we are in the story, but let me just remind you. So in Matthew 21, Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and Jesus is going there as the king to be received as such and to be worshipped and enjoyed. Uh, he has come as the king. We've seen that all through the Gospel of Matthew. And, of course, when he comes into his, to his temple, he is soundly rejected by the people, rejected by the priests and the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And then you find in chapter, the rest of 21 and 22, there's that series of confrontations that they have with Jesus. And there's this battling back and forth leading us to chapter 23 in Matthew, where he finally just, Jesus condemns the religious leadership and condemns them. And then in 24, he moves to uh, prophesy that Jerusalem would be destroyed. In other words, in judgment of a people who have failed to receive their king as king, he brings judgment to Jerusalem. And he prophesies that not one stone will be left upon another. And we find that to be the case, of course. In just 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed. But Jerusalem becomes a picture. The tribulation that comes upon Jerusalem is a picture of the tribulation that will be with us until the end until the very end of the age. And we saw that in chapter 24. In the very end of 24, Jesus speaks about at the end of the age, he's going to come. Jesus will return in power and glory and reestablishing all things to the glory of God. So that's what Jesus is leading up. We we see he's rejected, he brings judgment, and he prophesies it till the end of the world. Then he tells his disciples to be careful to be persevering, to be faithful. And he started going through, don't be like the people of Noah's day that were shocked when the judgment came in the flood. Don't be like the master of the house who was warned that there was a thief, but he went to sleep anyways. Hey, don't be like the servant when the master goes away, that he goes about eating and drinking as if the master will never return. Don't be like that. And then we have in chapter 25, as Rachel just read, these ten virgins. Now, your translation may have maidens, it may have bridesmaids. The word virgin, unmarried woman, a maiden, always then a virgin. The attendants of this wedding feast would have been unmarried women. So a virgin, a maiden, bridesmaids, all speaking about the same group. So these ten virgins are waiting. Now, let me just explain real quick. If you noticed in the text, it says the kingdom of of heaven will be. Jesus is not, normally it's the kingdom of heaven is like. So Jesus is clearly pointing to a time in the future of what it's going to be. And he's trying to draw a comparison here. He's saying that the coming kingdom will be like these ten virgins waiting for the bridegroom to come. There's this preparation, a readiness to celebrate in a wedding feast. will be like us, the church, waiting to celebrate with Christ as he comes to establish his kingdom. Now, the way that a Jewish wedding would normally go, and we don't have a ton of information on this, but but generally speaking, the bridegroom would come to the house of the bride. 
And there would be attendants waiting outside for him to greet him with joy and rejoicing and singing. And then they would all go into the home of the bride where the ceremony would take place, or at least he would gather his bride and then go to a place where the ceremony would take place. After that, the procession and these weddings were often done at night, hence the torches and the candles. The procession would go back to the groom's house where there would be feasting for up to a week. And so you have this scene here that Jesus is going to use this parable to have us get ready so that when he comes, because we know no one knows the hour nor the day, he's saying it's a warning to us to be ready, to be prepared at any time. Now this parable is kind of simple to understand at one level, But it's got a few twists in it. And so I just want to look at these four twists and these four turns and use them as means to help us. What does it mean to be ready? What does it mean to be prepared for the coming of the Lord? Okay, so the first thing we see is the first twist is that the coming of the Son of Man will meet a mixed community, will meet a a group not fully pure, and where I draw this from is, of course, Jesus is the, br- the bridegroom in this passage. Now, we don't have a bride. Did you notice? There's no bride spoken of in this parable, but there are ten bridesmaids. And they're representing the church. They're representing the gathered community that is waiting for the bridegroom to come. That's us. That's right here, us in this room, the gathered community waiting for him. So, so there's ten. Now, <clears throat> the parable turns on when he gets there, five are not ready. They're not prepared. They don't have enough oil. Now, before I try to explain what the oil is, because that's a real point of discussion, the point of it is that how surprising would it be, because oftentimes a whole town was involved in the wedding, how surprising it would be when the bridegroom finally comes, they're not ready. They're not ready for I mean, it's a shocker. And and I think instead of getting tossed up and turned over the oil, Jesus' point is how shocking that would be. But I think he's pointing out to us that the community of faith is going to be a mixed community. There are going to be some who are ready, representing those who are redeemed. They've been reconciled to God. And you see that by their readiness. You see that by their preparation. But there's also a group that they look like the other bridesmaids. They act like them. Seems the same, but they're not ready. They're not redeemed. They're not reconciled. They're not part of the community. But you can't tell that until the bridegroom comes. In other words, they're going to church like us. They're being baptized. They're taking communion. They may be contributing. They may be involved in a ministry. They post every Sunday at church. But it's at the very end that it's revealed they were never redeemed. They were never reconciled to God. It's quite a surprise, really, that in the kingdom of heaven, there will be people there that you don't expect. And there will be people that will not be there that you expect. It's a mixed community. And it's to leave us in shock. It's to cause us to kind of step back and and pause for a minute. But it, it does beg the question for us, so that's the first twist, Jesus returns. It's a mixed community. So it begs the question, are we ready or not? 
I mean, are we wise or are we foolish? I mean, what would represent us? Alexander Scott was a Presbyterian minister, and he says, people want to see 15 virgins here. Five that are wise, five that are foolish, and five that are neither. You know, we like the undecided box on forms. We don't want to have to take a position. But you notice, as I mentioned last week, Jesus keeps teaching in this binary form. You have an older brother and a younger brother. You don't have a middle brother. You've got a wise virgin, you've got a foolish virgin. You don't have an undecided virgin. He forces us into assigning ourselves, and that makes us feel uncomfortable. Because most of you, I know, would feel uncomfortable to come up here and say, I'm a wise one. I'm one of the wise ones. I'm ready. I'm ready for him. He can come back today, tomorrow. It doesn't matter to me. I'm ready for him. We would feel uncomfortable. That that would seem arrogant to us. At the same time, we don't want to say, well, we're a foolish virgin. Because we're not prepared, we're not ready. What does that mean? And what does that mean that I must do now to get ready? And so we don't like to take a position. And yet Jesus is forcing us out of his mercy to figure out, where do you think we are? So the question is, how do we discern this? I mean, how do you know if you're wise or if you're foolish? What would be some arguments? Well, let me give you some questions to think about. And and these are questions for you to ponder. Is this subject over which I'm speaking of utmost importance to you right now? Are there other things that are pressing on you that are more important than this? Uh, Do you care a lot whether and what God thinks of you? Do you think of Jesus Christ and his coming back in glory and power very often? Do you think you've changed? Over the months and over the years, have you changed? I mean, if we were to look at the oil, and I hesitate to say what the oil is, because people say, well, it's the Spirit of God. Well, that makes sense. But it's hard then to think that the other virgins went in town and got some more of the Spirit and then came out looking for Jesus. And then the door was shut on them, so what, what good did it do them anyways? Some people think it's good works, which I tend to lean towards if I had to pick one, because the next parable that Daniel's going to preach next week on the parable of the stewards, that's about, about good works. And And we'll talk about that more later. But we don't know. The question is, let me just give you these questions instead of trying to figure out the oil. When you sin, do you feel the conviction of the Spirit such that you repent before God and the one sinned against? Do you seek to strive to keep your relationships in harmony? In other words, that you're actively testing the tenor and the temperature of your relationships so that they're right and holy and good. Uh, Do you desire to use the gifts that God has given to you as Scott prayed to image God to the world? Uh, Do you worry or do you concern yourself with the works that you do for the kingdom? You know, in Matthew 25, at the end of the chapter, Jesus is going to say clearly, he's going to separate the sheep and the goats. And here's how he's going to separate them. When I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was thirsty, did you give me something to drink? When I was naked, did you clothe me? When I was in prison, did you visit me? Now, the works don't save. I hope you know that by now. Works will not save you, but works are a clear indication when they're born out of faith and from joy over what he has done for us. Works are an indication that the Spirit of God is moving in you. And so that would be evidence to you. Do you desire to live a life of active obedience? Not that you carry it out all the time, But when you don't, you repent. 
God, forgive me for that. <clears throat> Are you foolish or wise? You know, Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he has this admonition for us. Here's what he says. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Isn't that an amazing thing to write to the church? Examine yourselves. So he's looking at you. I've known many of you for close to 20 years, some of you less. And I'm saying to you, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Well, don't you know, Tom? Well, many of you I do, actually. But, but he calls the church to be in the habit of examining themselves to see if they're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I don't want to sow seeds of doubt in your mind at all. I just want to follow this admonition to be mindful of examining ourselves. Now, this is the beauty of where the church comes in. That this is the importance of you being an active life in the church. Because from the position of the church, we can affirm and we can encourage what we see of God's grace in your life. I mean, how am I to discern? So if I have some repeatable sin that I practice, I won't name it, but let's say I just struggle with a particular sin or two. Think of one for yourself. Maybe it's anger, maybe it's malice, maybe it's jealousy, maybe it's lustfulness. But whatever that, how do I know when that's an issue of disbelief, that maybe I'm really not saved, versus it's an ongoing work of God's sanctifying spirit in me, raising it up, repenting and moving. How would I know that? If you're not part of a community where you're known and you're, <clears throat> you're knowing others, then, then how do we rightly assess ourselves? It's hard because our hearts are deceitful and we always want to grade ourselves on the curve. I can always make excuses for my behavior. I can always find some person who said something at some point in time that made me do what I... You know how that is. I, I mean, we can always find reasons. Any marital conflict? I have had... I don't think I've ever had a couple come into my office with marital conflict saying I'm at fault. It never happened. I need to change. It doesn't work that way. If you could change the lump of flesh next to me, we will be fine. I, I mean, that. <clears throat> but, so if you come in, that's what I'm looking for. Not that. But, but our hearts are deceitful. We need the engagement of other people to, to point out, to encourage, to admonish, or even to warn us. So, so that's the first twist. That's how we get ready. You're in the life of the church. You're examining yourself. Are you in the faith? So what I want to leave you with on this point <clears throat> is I want you to ask yourself, and I want you to pick which one are you in, and why are you in it? And if you're uncertain, grab a good friend. Talk to a spouse. Don't leave this sermon on this type of text and just say, oh, that was a cute thing that he said about the people coming in his office. So, so where are you? Okay, the second twist in the story is that the coming of the Son of Man will be delayed. It'll be delayed. Now, this is important. Do you remember last a couple weeks ago, at the beginning of Matthew 24, the disciples asked the question, when are these things going to take place? And he said, no one knows the hour or the day, right? Only the Father knows these things. And I explained that. Well, then, if you were to jump to Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, uh, now think about it now. This is after the resurrection. They have seen him rise from the dead. So they say to him, they say, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? 
And again, he says, no, no one knows the date that the Father has set by his own authority. They thought he was coming right away. And so this is why Jesus told the parable, that there's going to be a delay. This is why I think the virgins are sleeping. You know, in this passage, I don't think sleeping is a problem. Now, he does say, stay awake, but we already learned last week that that's more metaphoric, metaphorical, you know, to stay alert. But the sleeping indicates the length of time is going to be significant between the ascension and the second coming. It's going to be a significant chunk of time. And this is a challenge to us. Because the longer it goes, the more we get distracted moved into normal routines. <clears throat> In fact, the, uh, the delay actually becomes fodder for the unbeliever to say, well, where is this coming? Where's the promises of, a coming, of his coming? It's always been this way since creation. And it becomes a reason for people to disbelieve. So we, we need to know that. But isn't it kind of Jesus to tell us there will be a delay so that when we're in the delay, we can say he told us there was going to be a delay. He never indicated how long, but they were sleeping, which shows a degree of normalcy that would come to life. So we need to know that. So the twist is there's going to be a delay. But what does it look like? What does wisdom look like in this context? You know, who's the fool and who's the one who is wise? Well, of course, the fool is the one who misuses the delay that doesn't prepare. Now, as I said, delays challenge us. Listen, if, when I was in Maryland, University of Maryland, and they said, hey, we're going to delay the test for two weeks, that meant I delay studying for two weeks. It's simple, isn't it? I'm going to delay the test, and I'll delay the study. <clears throat> so the delay, you see, the fool that doesn't use the delay well that doesn't mean they fall into some massive sexual sin. We misuse this delay when we get distracted. When we just love inordinately things that are quite ordinary. It, it's distracted. And in this Western culture, we all know how easy it is to be distracted. I think I shared probably 10 years ago this um, a children's illustration that I I came across that I thought was classic for kind of explaining this situation. Uh, a woman has a, just a flock of kids in front of her, and, and she has this very large bag, right? It's just stuffed full. It looks like Santa's bag. It's just stuffed. And, and the first thing she pulls out, though, is this egg timer, and she turns it. She goes, now, I want you to watch the egg timer. And you hear it clicking away, and I think it's like three minutes long. I just want you to pay attention to this. And then she set it to the side, and of course all the kids were captivated because there's nothing else up there. They're just looking at it and hearing it tick away. And then she goes back in the goodie bag, and, and she pulls out this gift, and she unwraps it real slowly, and it's a beautiful toy. It's got all kinds of colors and stuff. And she sets it down, and the kids are kind of doing one of these deals, you know, back and forth, and looking at the clock, looking at the present. But the bag's so big that she had it. Then she grabs another present out, and she begins to unwrap it, and the kids are now mesmerized because this is a bigger toy, and it's got moving parts to it, and puts that down. And she does it through four or five toys and sets them all up. Well, by the time she's reaching in the bag, and then the egg timer goes. And, of course, all the kids are startled. And, and, and the idea is they had gotten so caught up. They were told it was right in front of them. I mean, they could hear the thing ticking, and yet the toys and the presence and the beauty, it was just so captivating. They were just distracted from it, and they missed it, and they were caught unaware. 
We want to be useful in this delay. How do we act with wisdom in this delay? Well, the first thing I would say to you, and Richard Balcom is a New Testament theologian, a British New Testament theologian, he says this, he says, the delay of the parousia, the parousia is a Greek transliteration means coming, the delay of the coming is filled with the mission of the church. This is our time. This is the church's time. We're not to be wallowing and wondering in this delay. We're to be active. We're to be seeking, what are my gifts that God has given to me? And <clears throat> what are the position that I have in society? And the wisdom that I've been given? And the experience that I have? And how am I going to marshal all these things and leverage them for the advancement of God's kingdom in my place, in my time? How am I going to do that? Who am I going to ask to come into my life and say, what do you see me good at? How can I engage to advance the kingdom? Not, to just, not just to do good works, that's a good thing individually, but when it flows out of the church, God's glorified. So what are we doing as a church? You know, Nick has put a lot of work into Serve Raleigh. You're going to be hearing more and more about it. Of course, that, that lovely lady did a wonderful presentation last week about 4,000 steps and about how we can serve this, uh, this pregnancy uh, center and, and how we can help these women. We're going to have, of course, some stuff with the, with the school down the road, and there'll be other ministries that we can be involved in that will be coming up to you in the next number of weeks. Let's involve ourselves in that. Folks, if a, if a meteor landed on this building on Monday, once we're out of it, and flattened the building... Would anybody in the community know that we're not here anymore? Would anybody know it? They should know it. That's the kind of impact that I'm speaking about. I mean, that, that we notice what I'm saying. I'm not saying you've got to go sell everything and go overseas. I'm not calling for a radical response. Just an ordinary one. Just use the gifts you have. That's how we use the time. To use our gifts. This is what Paul wrote, and I quoted this last time in Titus 2. He says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So the question is, what do we do while we're waiting, Paul? Well, he tells us. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself of people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Would that describe you? Are you zealous for good works? Last week I used the analogy of us being like a bunch of antique cars, all this wisdom and power and ingenuity, stuck in a barn that's maybe traipsed out one time a year. I look at some of us, you're very intelligent people, educated, well-heeled, gifted. You've got a ton of horsepower. What are we doing with it that is utilizing the delay that we have right now for his kingdom? It's the ordinary stuff, people. It's not the going overseas. C.S. Lewis wrote this paper. You can Google it. It's the second coming of Christ. It's a great... I read it to Carol last night. She was out like a light by the end of it. <laughs> not the article. It's probably the reader. But, but here's what he says. It is so good. He says, For what comes at judgment? Happy are those whom it finds laboring in their vocations, whether they are merely going out to feed pigs or laying good plans to deliver humanity a hundred years hence from some great evil. 
The curtain has indeed now fallen. Those pigs will never, in fact, be fed. The great campaign against white slavery or governmental tyranny will never, in fact, proceed to victory. No matter. You were at your post when the inspection came. He's saying no one knows the time. We always think, well, you can't come yet because I'm in the middle of this. We don't know the final act. So we want to be found faithful, pressing forward his kingdom while we're in this planet. But not just the work of the kingdom work, the work we do in here. Keith gave that word about our desire for discipleship. You know, we as a leader team want to model what we're messaging. And what we're trying to model is we're going to each grab a man or two and we're just going to read through scriptures. We're going to read through a book. We're just going to engage in promoting the spiritual good of other people. We're going to do that calling you to do the same thing. You know, if you go on our website, there are probably over 50 resources that you can just click on, books and links on what to study, how to disciple, books to read, articles and links. Just go there. What do I mean? I really mean to make it simple. I'm going to meet with two different men. I'm just going to either read the Bible and just talk about it. I mean, I'm really going to make it easy for myself and for them. We're just going to talk about what does this mean? What do we do with it? When I leave this place, what changes in my life? That's what I'm talking about, the spiritual good for one another. Think about how 1 Peter ends, or to the end of his first letter. Here's what he speaks about. He says in the fourth chapter, he says, the end of all things is at hand. Now, if I said that to you, if I came up and said, the end of all things is at hand, and you knew that I had apostolic authority like Peter, wouldn't it kind of lean you forward like What do we got to do? What do we got to do? What's happening? Here's what he says. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So he's saying, the end of all things is near people. We ought to be praying, praying for people, praying for ourselves to finish well. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. So you're saying the end is near, but I'm just supposed to love people earnestly. That's right. He says this, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So you're saying the end could be tomorrow, and I'm supposed to have people over my house on Sunday for lunch to talk about the things of God? Yeah, that's right. But the end is near, I know. Just show hospitality to one another. He says, each of you has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks, speak with the words of God. Whoever serves, serve with the strength that God provides so that in all things God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. I mean, that's the call. How do we use this time? How are we wise with this delay? Thank God for the delay. It's his patience for others to maybe come to know him. Let's use it actively. That's the wise person. Okay, the third twist in the story is that when he comes back, the coming of the Son of Man will be a separation, and it's the wise who enter the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 6 with me. It's at midnight you hear a cry. Last week it was a trumpet sound. Now it's a cry. And listen to the cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out and meet him. Well, of course, the girls at this point are scrambling. They're trimming their lamps, right? They're getting ready to begin the procession. That's what they've been waiting for. And, of course, the prepared ones, the wise ones, add oil to their lamps Because when they'd been sleeping, oil had run down low. And then the other, the foolish didn't have any oil. And so they said, well, give us some of your oil. And and the wise said, no, we can't do that. Now, it's a parable here. This isn't a real life story. But it's a parable teaching a truth. So they weren't being selfish. They were being sensible. There isn't enough for everybody, is what they were saying. 
But you know the point that is beneath it, don't you? You can't transfer spiritual readiness. I mean, a godly grandmother can't save an ungodly grandson. A prepared wife cannot save an unprepared husband. You can't ride in on the coattails of someone's spirituality. Well, my parents were really strong believers. That was great for your parents. That's not great for you. Maybe as an example, it was great. You cannot transfer spiritual readiness, is what I'm saying. And so the scene moves to the wise where they enter with them. Can you imagine those words with me, though, for a minute? Come out and meet him. You know, when Carol and I were overseas for a couple of years, uh, it, was, it was in the time uh, where there was no internet and phone calls were about four bucks a minute and we were living on a missionary salary, so there wasn't a lot of calls, no Skyping, no FaceTime, none of that stuff. No Instagram, no picture sharing, nothing like that. And so after two years, to come back and see your family that you love was pretty powerful. I mean, it was amazing. Very little communication, and to see their face again. It was really sweet. I mean, the reunion was, I, I remember it, it was, it was big. Uh, there's a story I really want to share about that, but I, I want to be nice to Carol's family. Or actually one of her family members, but we'll just say they got lost coming home. Yeah, I won't go any further. <laughs> Point of it was, it was deliriously wonderful. Can you imagine, come and meet him, the Savior of creation, the Redeemer, all of God's plans sitting on the shoulders. The government will rest upon his shoulders. Everything rests in Christ's success, and we meet him. What do you say? What do you do? Have you ever imagined what it will be like? I mean, will it not be overwhelming to meet the one who laid down his life for you? He saved you by bearing your sin and shame and guilt. He took upon himself your curse so that you will forever be united with God in happiness and perfection and beauty, forever thanking God for him. Come out and meet him. I mean, I, I don't know what to think about that. It's incredible. And then the feast. Then we enter the feast, right? Well, Luke gives us a picture of the feast that no other gospel writer gives us. You'll see the similarity in language, and you'll see some differences because it's a different parable, teaching the same thing, using a different parable. He says this, Stay dressed and ready for action. Keep your lamps burning. And be like men and women who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him, and at once when he comes and knocks, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table, and he will come and serve them. The one who has served us on the cross, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He will come and serve us again at the feast. He will have us recline. I mean, this to me is worthy of your time to consider. It's worthy of carving out time to consider this idea and think about it. I mean, how are we wise? How are we to be wise and prepared? Think about it. Do you ponder the coming of Christ? Have you been doing that more since we've been speaking about it? 
I mean, does your heart not leap for that? I mean, I, I think about if you were a pilgrim and you were journeying to a far-off country. That's what C.S. Lewis calls heaven. And if you've been journeying and journeying and journeying, and then, then you turn a corner and you spy it in the distance a long way off, doesn't your heart leap? Don't you want to begin walking faster? That's where we are. We're spying off a far country. I mean, contemplate the country. Contemplate Christ. Think about it. If you need to use your sin and confession to cause you to contemplate his redemption on the cross for you, think about it. If you want to contemplate your conversion, what did he save you from, people? Where were you? Track out your life. If he hadn't intervened and interceded and moved in saving you, where would you have been? I would have been a, I would have been a divorced man. Hands down. Where would you have been? Or look at creation. As Nick gave word to, mountains of righteousness. Judgment as deep as the sea. I mean, use those, those pictures of creation to lift your eyes to the greatness. Behold the one who has come to you. That's how we prepare, by beholding. The fourth twist, and for me the saddest twist, and that is that when the foolish virgins come back, they knock on the door. And they say, Lord, Lord, we know they were part of the gathered community. They're using our language. They're calling him the name we call him. And it says the door was shut. The door shut. It, it, it reminded me of, can you imagine if you were back watching Noah's completed the ark in Genesis 7, and it says the Lord shut the door. And then the rains come. And the waters rise. Can't you imagine? Open the door! Can you? They'd be pounding on the ark. Open the door! Just take my child. Don't save me. Just take my child. Can you imagine? And the door didn't open. The door was shut. And then Jesus says these words. He says these words that I never knew you. Now, he obviously knew them. He recognized them in terms of cognizance. It's a term of disowning or disassociation. It's a terrifying word. It's the same word, incidentally, he gave in Matthew 7 where he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, that's exactly what they're going to say. They say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father on that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons, do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The, the sadness over this is that they had opportunities. And that the door is shut. It's final. There is a separation that will never be crossed. It's incredible, the weight of that. The fool hears this and moves on. If, you're, if this does nothing to you, then the scripture is saying you are one of these foolish virgins. There is no second chance once he returns. And, and, and right now the door is not shut because he hasn't returned. There, there is a, there is a, we are in a 
a time of grace, if you will. And, and so for those of you here, if you are uncertain, if you are concerned, I hope you're concerned. I hope we're all investigative. But for those that are concerned, you've, you've never moved with repentance towards God. You've never, you've never asked for God to forgive you with your eyes looking at Christ, the Savior. You've tried to make your own amends with God and you've promised to do better. That's not Christianity. Christianity is a complete unveiling and revealing of my absolute brokenness and I need a Savior to deliver me. That's what Christianity is about. It's about a bunch of busted people finally figuring out how busted they are and they're saying, God, I'm a sinner. I've, I've walked so in, contrary, in contradiction to you. And it's repentance, and it's faith. It's asking for forgiveness, and then placing your faith that he's enough to save. Let me give it to you in theological terms. It's to believe in the passive and the active righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let me explain. When Jesus died on the cross, he was passively enduring the wrath of God for your sin. He passively endured it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know that he was bearing our sin because the son whom God loved was somehow forsaken by the father because he was bearing our curse. An act of righteousness, and this is important, we get that, most of us, and we're thankful that he paid for our sins. What we don't get is the act of righteousness. He lived a life that was fully pleasing to God at every level. And his active obedience to God is what brings about to us a righteousness that God will find us acceptable. So no matter how good you get in this life, and I pray you will keep incrementally growing in holiness, that does not put you in heaven. That does not bring God's favor. It's Christ's merits for you. He actively was righteous for us. So those perfectionists who never can seem to get it right, thank God for the active righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what saves us. And that's what our trust is hinged to. He has done it all for me. That's what it means to become a Christian. I believe he's died for my sins and he has lived for my righteousness. And out of the overflow of my joy, I will live righteously for his glory. Not to save me, but for his glory and in response to that. That's what it means to believe. In fact, Alexander White, a great old preacher of a, of a 19th century, late 19th century, says, have you laid on Christ your sins one by one? Does he bear in his body any marks of yours? Are there not stripes on his flesh that no sins but yours could have put there? My brethren, have your feet stood on that spot beside your scapegoat? Have you laid on him your iniquity? Have you made it impossible for him to say, I never knew you. For the wise, we watch and we stay aware. In that piece that I read to you from C.S. Lewis, he quotes John Donne, the old English poet. And here's what John Donne suggested. He said, he said, reflect on this. What if this present night were the world's last night? Just ask yourself, what if the present is the world's last night? What if it was? Are you ready? Are you watchful? Are you excited? Are you thankful? 
four little twists in this parable. The coming of the Son of Man is going to meet a mixed community. It's going to be delayed. There's going to be a separation with the wise entering, and the separation will be permanent with the door being shut to the foolish. Let's take a minute now and ask God for grace to reveal to us all that he needs to share with us. For those of you that are convicted by sin, repent. For those that are concerned, seek his grace, seek his help. And then Levy's going to close us in just a moment.